Welcome to the latest episode of the Mag Debrief. This week we are looking at the 23rd of October edition of the magazine. And as usual, I'm joined by Dan Worth, international editor. Hello. Hello, Dan. Hi, Dan. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. How are you? Oh, wonderful. And uh, Groyna Hallahan, who is our recruitment editor. How are you, Groyna? I'm good, thank you. In that case, let's get started. Okay, the first feature we're going to look at this week is the cover feature by Jess Powell, and it asks... Can your pedagogy be prejudiced? Over the past 12 months with the Black Lives Matter uh, protests and the the huge social change brought on by the coronavirus pandemic, schools have been looking at their content from the point of view of uh, prejudice, but how closely have they looked at the way they teach? And this conversation came to a head in August when one of the big US uh, academy chains essentially decided that some of their teaching practices were going to stop because they believed them to be uh, disproportionately affecting some of the ethnic ethnic minorities in, in in the in their schools, and this started a debate about okay, can the way we teach be exclusionary for certain pupils? Um, what do you guys think of this? I mean, it's it's a sensitive topic, obviously, but it's one it's a, it's a conversation we do need to have. I think that the thing that strikes me the most from reading Jess's article is that idea that schools serve the communities that they're in. And that should be at the forefront of all of the policies. And if schools are going back and looking at the policies that they hold and the way that they teach and what's on the curriculum, they should always have that at the forefront of their minds. And I think that, you know, there was a, there was a lot of kickback from, from things that happened over the summer. And it's not necessarily a bad thing if people are looking at what they're doing and questioning, why do we do it this way? It's not good enough just to say, we do it like this because we've always done it like this. We should always be thinking, can we do this better? Is there a better way to do this? I think we should probably at this point put in some of the examples shown. And um, one of them, the what the US school in question uh, has decided to stop using one of the um, teach like a champion techniques, which was slant. And uh, the, the Doug Lamov, who's, who's the chief sort of um, person behind teach like a champion, he's in the piece and he's saying, actually, he sees the slant technique as not, racist and it's not exclusionary he believes it's inclusionary and that that's a theme through the piece because also we look at gender and there's some people who are saying well the school system was built for boys and actually because of the the gender stereotypes because of the the misogyny in society female students don't feel like they can talk up uh speak up in class and again you have these two varying views about how you best tackle that and they seem opposite but the end goal is the same that they they want to have an inclusion an inclusionary pedagogy if, if if i can mangle the words quite that badly then you deal with the international sector a lot and obviously the cultural melting pot is even even broader in those schools i mean you've had pieces from head teachers who, who say you can have 30 different nationalities in a, in a class of 30 mm. i mean the, the the issues seem that much more acute yeah so the the piece does a great job of sort of showing that this is a a conversation that's only just started in some ways and probably for you know the vast majority of schooling there's been one way of doing it and we kind of assume that's worked for everyone but that's obviously been a very biased thing to the to the ruling sort of uh classes and societies and in certain parts of the world and obviously now you know you have that same model in the international school system where people go and have a british education but of course if a child's culture or a family's culture is very different to that that environment well, obviously they've chosen to go there but it's still that sense of is that the best teaching method 
for that child or, or for children again in an English school if they're being forced to behave in a certain way that goes against what they would know at home or what they how culturally they might be different but obviously that's a huge topic because understandably a teacher would say yeah but I need to have a set of rules delivered lessons for everyone and it's got to work and to, to bring on these nuanced things of cultures and background at least to talk about it immediately sounds like a lot of work doesn't it and a lot of oh we've always done this it's always worked but I think what's so important and what the feature does such a good job of doing is raising that this actually is an area that we need to think about because even if you're making a few changes you might provide a better classroom environment and actually I found there's a piece in that they talk about the teacher says talking about slang and, and misspelled words you know shouldn't exclude you from a conversation and I thought that was really interesting that idea that the fundamentals of learning is what's important not just adhering to a set of rules you know if you're if, if you speak in a certain way or if you you know, if you look a certain way, that shouldn't be a factor in how you learn. You know, the learning needs to be provided for you regardless. And I guess, I mean, if we bring this down to a, to a single teacher level, Gornia, I mean, it's unpleasant for someone to suggest the way you teach could be prejudiced. And it, it can be hurtful to think that. And obviously teachers have preferred ways of teaching that they think, well, this is, this is, this is me. This is how I teach. And how do I teach to 30 different kids but I, I guess the point of the piece is it's not about trying to fit in with every child's different needs it, it's about finding a way of assessing and reflecting on your practice I think the the article starts a really important conversation and I think it, it it reads like that you're reading through different thoughts and different opinions on the on the matter and the there needs to be an element of accepting that perhaps ways that we've done things in the past were wrong and it, it's not an intentional thing it's not it's not about pointing a finger of blame and it's not about trying to um trying to make people feel guilty or bad about things that have happened in the past but simply was this the best way to do it could this possibly be excluding sections of our community if we continue to do it in this way um is there a better way of, of going about it I think um, we'd really like to hear your viewpoint on this. So, um, you know, get in touch with us on Twitter, you know, comment under the feature itself. And, and perhaps it's something we'll come back to when we've got more comments from people and we can have we can sort of further the discussion. Because as the piece said, this is this is something that will develop. And it's something that, as you said, is the start of a conversation. So so hopefully we'll get some good feedback. The second feature we are looking at today is going to be described by Mr. Danworth. Thank you, John. Uh, the piece I've chosen from this week's issue is a piece about um, display boards. Uh, it's a piece by John Morgan, and he sort of looks at the the science of you know, should you should you or should you not have a display board or display boards in your classroom, and you know that there's sort of mixed sort of cognitive load theory issue of you know is it too much for a child to take in? Is it too busy an environment? Is it distracting? Versus a boring empty classroom is actually also not ideal learning, and you need a bit of both. Um, and I just thought, again, it shows how something as sort of seemingly simple as, oh, put a few nice displays up in your classroom actually opens up a world of science and learning theories and, and research. Um, and, I, and again, it just got me thinking about my time at school and the, I remember some of the displays we had. I remember there was a, um, one in a history classroom about showing the sort of the weird similarities between Lincoln and, um, uh, Lincoln and Kennedy and their assassinations and the fact there was always, there's always crazy coincidences between them. And I always remember that one. I always, so lots of little facts at the time I remember being fascinated by. So I thought, oh, I like that display, but then I tried to take some other classrooms and I couldn't remember any of the displays, but it must've been there. So I just think it's a good example of, you know, there's nothing simple in teaching. <laughs> 
I think the point that got me was that, you know, we the big push at the moment is, you know, workload, teacher workload. We shouldn't be, you know, edging our display boards with some nice, nice coloured, coloured bordering material and, you know, the, the time it takes to put all this stuff up. And that's led to an assumption that we shouldn't have display boards, whereas the piece is quite clear that an empty room is is probably as damaging as an overloaded room because as humans, we don't like an empty box. It, it's unsettling to us. Mm. Um, and I thought that was a good point. And also that while we know that there's too much material is overloading, actually, we don't know what optimal load is in terms of classroom displays. Um, but again, we shouldn't underestimate the hatred of display boards among some teachers, Groiner. Is that right? I mean, this is something that they have to do in their own time. And there was a time when there were rules around colours, around presentation around backing material i mean there there, there was a, a sort of cult around the display border i i once read a really heated twitter a twitter route about um whether or not double double mounting your work students work on a display board was um like indicative of your pride in your as yourself as a teacher right okay <laughs> you didn't double mount what sort of person were you <laughs> Which really tickled me, but they were lucky. If my if my kids' work went up with anything behind it, I just need a bit of flu back and just stuck it on the wall. It's falling down, miss. Oh well, <laughs> stick it back up. Um, pride you um, had in your students. I was so lucky. So in one school that I was in, the school I taught in for the longest, we had an LSA whose job was to do displays in our classroom, which sounds brilliant, doesn't it? But she didn't really like doing displays, so they all. <laughs> she was such a nice person but her displays were dreadful um yeah and some like i've worked with teachers before who've gone and bought um rolls of paper wrapping paper from paper chase and use that as backing paper on their display boards it's a very expensive way to way to do it i do not advocate you buy paper chase wrapping paper for a display board backing sheet um i like displays but i i like simple easy displays that look look effective but don't take much input because i'm lazy when you say they're about um wrapping paper do you mean they use the the non uh pattern side no they use the patterns why would <laughs> have the pattern facing the wall no you have the pattern the, outside yeah so they were that's what i meant so i was asking, they were buying very expensive wrapping paper to be used as a sort of form of wallpaper for the backing yeah. of their displays mm -hmm. wow that mm -hmm. just yeah that's that's, yeah, that's crazy that's and i guess there there is on that theme there is a there is a point that some teachers are very 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 good at arts and crafts and i've been into some classrooms where i've been amazed it's like walking into an enchanted forest because you know the work they've done and part of me just thinks that you know some of the criticisms of those teachers it's not really about um you know if they do that when we're expected to do that why not let that teacher have have their head if they want to do that then let them do it and if it becomes a rule i see the problem but if i don't see anything wrong with that teacher doing it and i think the other thing that skews the debate quite badly is you have a lot of secondary teachers saying oh, you know being very grumpy about display boards and then you have a lot of primary teachers going hang on they're really useful and in all these discussions you never seem to find a distinction <laughs> no one ever goes oh i can see how that works at primary or oh you know Obviously, in secondary, if you don't have your own classroom, I can see the problems. But why don't we get those conversations about displays? Well, a, a conversation on social media that lacks nuance. You know, I, I know, I know, sorry. <laughs> um, 
it's it's funny one of the things i liked best about displays was it was a way of like marking my own territory like this is my room and it used to make when i um came back obviously from the multiple children i kept kept on having i was always coming back from maternity leave and being stuck in someone else's classroom who just left or who'd been moved around and it's a way of making the room feel like yours and it's really nice that it's um it's lovely that you can refer to displays or kids come in and they see their work up on a display that is really nice and um it can be great for like really practical things like i like having maps up and having maps of uh, maps of the world up when we we're doing back in the day when we could do poems from other cultures like look and the poems from over here and it's this far away from us but it's really close to here and that's it's nice like it's it's good to have things up on the wall like i completely when i read that feature like yes plain boring walls that's really dull you almost went into a bit of Eminem there, the way you sort of were de delivering that. That was, that was, I was expecting you to really go for it. But, but I, I, also, <laughs> I also really like maps and things like that. And I think as a, young children should see a map of the world and, yeah. where, and flags and things like that. Because it's, it's just yeah. good, good stuff to have going on. But what was interesting then, John, you sort of alluded to it, is there's a lot of the debate in the, in the feature was about uh, do teachers have time? Do they want to do them? It's a hassle versus do pupils get cognitive load? Is it too much? Is it too distracting? But obviously the, the other issue is, is parents. Like if you think if you visit the school and you walk into a completely empty room that's got nothing on the wall, it just will look awful. Whereas if it's like you said, you sort of said, wow, it's incredible. It really looks great. You know, you would think, well, I want to send my child to this school or I feel they're learning here or I feel like, well, what a buzzing environment they're in. And a blank, three blank walls, because it's like, oh, they learn better by just looking straight ahead. It's sort of, oh, do I want to, this is a bit soulless. You know, the worst thing about that is, Dan, so when do parents come and look around schools? open evenings open evenings happen in october so you've just got back to school you haven't got time to really like do the work with the class to then make the displays to go on the wall so you have this mad rush in september and the start of october to get all your your displays up because that's when the parents come around to look at the school instead of it being a more natural way of like throughout the school year things go up onto the wall and it can mm. happen at a much nicer pace rather than oh no open evenings coming quick everyone make a display and all the kids spend their their lessons making display work instead of actually learning i think we should point out at this point that making display work doesn't necessarily negate learning happening groinia i think your your individual view is coming through there there is it's perfectly possible to do work for a display board that does constitute learning surely i think maybe i was doing displays wrong <laughs> <laughs> okay let's move on uh, feature three, we're going to take a turn in the direction of behaviour, Groiner, aren't we? We are. So this article is incredibly useful as a sort of guide if you're thinking about changing your behaviour policy or if you're a teacher at a school where the behaviour policy is changing. It's a really handy like map of the route you need to take and things you need to consider and the journey that you go on when you do have a behaviour policy change. And it's something that happens in schools quite regularly. Um, often when there's a change of leadership or after, if you've had a, a poor offset inspection, a, a thing that often happens after that is there's a, they look at the behaviour policy if that was a problem in the inspection. So it's something that happens in schools all the time. But just because you've got a new behaviour policy doesn't automatically just because you put it up on the website doesn't mean that suddenly all the children are going to start to behave and all your staff need to all know automatically how to use it so what amy does is she talks through the step by step of how you need to put that policy out and what things you need to look for to make sure it's a success here's a, here's a question for you 
the, the school behavior policy is often seen as, as, as the sort of Bible, right? You know, mm-hmm. you, you live by it. How far does a behavior lead realize, really expect it to be followed to the letter? I mean, where's teacher autonomy when it comes to behavior? Where does that fit with a behavior policy that's there for consistency? Because there is a gray area between a teacher's judgment and ensuring consistency. So a good behavior policy will have those things built into it. So the idea that a teacher can use their own judgment and can use their knowledge of their student and the class to make their decision should be part of behavior policy. And one of the things that Amy pulls up in her piece is the idea that it's got to be so specific to your context and like your, your school and your behavior policy will be very specific to your school. And it's, she does mention about um, teachers not who don't follow the policy and the idea that you shouldn't ever give a teacher negative feedback for using the policy. Your, your attention should go to those that aren't following it because that's where the problems will be. Because if somebody's using the policy and following it, you shouldn't give them a hard time because, okay, they've, they've brought the detention to your door. They've made you aware of this issue the role of SLT is to ease the workload of teachers and to help teachers and not to make it difficult for them when they do follow the policy. So imagine me and Dan are coming to your classroom and our little child. Not as students or teachers? No, as, as parents, as oh, parents. parents. And, and our child has got a detention according to the behaviour policy and we're challenging that and saying actually we don't think that behaviour policy was, was used in a way that it was intended. Is that... If, if there's that ambiguity there, is that the fault of the behaviour policy or is that the fault of the teacher for not following it or is that a lack of understanding? I mean, how grey can it get and, and how would you deal with that situation? I think it's really important to have parents on board and Amy talks about how you need to communicate the, the policy with all of the, all of the stakeholders in the school and if parents aren't supportive of it then that's when situations like you've just described will, will arise because they won't be happy with the way that it's being carried out and it's about having that shared goal of knowing that the behaviour policy is going to help the learning of all the students including your son or daughter that's misbehaved and you're, you're arguing over the, the sanction. We're gender neutral at the moment. Okay. Um, that your child who has misbehaved and has been subsequently been sanctioned and what you ideally want in an ideal situation is that parents are supportive of that sanction and will work with the school to try and ensure it doesn't happen again. And do schools typically, I mean, this is another controversial question, but I think it needs to be asked is that, you know, what if that teach, what if this SLT look at that situation and say, actually they've got a point that teacher didn't use the behavior policy correctly. And this how, how does that happen? the time that ha- that's a constant problem in schools and I think schools where teachers are happy are ones where they feel that they can execute the behavior policy with the support of SLT and it's when they fear that SLT won't support them that the behavior policy falls apart because they don't have the confidence to say yeah actually you can't you can't swear at me that's it's going to be automatic warning if they feel like if they do that and then they lose face to their class because they've sanctioned the kid that is then overturned later on they don't they lose that they lose their authority in the class they also lose the confidence that they need to go into a classroom of children and lead them and teach them isn't is that an argument you're saying that the teacher's never wrong in that situation then i mean if 
if the SLT look at it and say, yes, that teacher hasn't followed, you know, actually they've applied the behavior policy, but their judgment was actually off. I mean, publicly, they're probably not going to say that, right? Hopefully they wouldn't say that, but it, it, it sometimes does happen. They would say that publicly and, and it does embarrass the teacher. But more importantly, is it not true that we all get things wrong sometimes? You can't expect mm. teachers to be perfect. Yet yeah, they're going to follow the behaviour policy and get it wrong sometimes. That's inevitable. Mm. But you shouldn't, you shouldn't hang someone out to dry because they've made a mistake. It should be about making sure that that mistake doesn't happen again. And where the root, like what's caused that mistake to happen? Is it because of a problem they've got in their class? Is it because you've got... Um, uh, the class is just too challenging there's not enough support in that class the behavior problems in that class it's it's all very well to say you know our teachers get it wrong of course teachers get it wrong we all get stuff wrong it'd be mad to think they didn't get things wrong but how can you make sure that those mistakes are minimized and don't aren't repeated mm. it, it makes me think of um in football they don't they don't re-referee incidents after they've mm. happened because they don't want to undermine the referee um yes. And so even though they know they've got it wrong and everyone can see that, the FA never come out and say, yes, the referee should have done this. Even though behind closed doors, presumably they must say to him, like, mm. you idiot, that was clearly a red card <laughs> and a penalty or whatever. So I suppose it's the same that thing. You can't the call the word public because you, you have to, yeah, you have to, the, the authority of the teacher or the referee has to be respected. And, and I, it's interesting because I wrote a piece back in February about consistency on behaviour and it's exactly that issue of how do you do that? And I spoke to several teachers and people who are former teachers and then become academics. And they were saying it's so difficult because some a te one teacher will take the behaviour policy and go, right, I really want to apply that properly and really rigorously and I, no deviation whatsoever. And then the next teacher comes along and goes, oh, OK, so, well, on this occasion, yeah, they did that, but I know why they did it. So I'll, I'll let it slide. And it's sort of and for the pupils, it's like, well, neither teacher's wrong, neither teacher's right. They're just implying their own personality almost onto the behaviour policy, which you can't, which is always going to happen to what you were saying, Gronia. And but it makes a very difficult thing where we're very consistent, but between each teacher on their own sort of interpretation of how it's written and you'll never escape. That's kind of human fallacy, yeah. isn't it? You know where we are. I was having a discussion with a teacher this week who spoke to me and he said, do you know what's really missing in our school? We, we don't have an enforcer. And, and he said, because we have to be the enforcer in our classroom, we have to be the scary one. It damages our, our relationships with the pupils. And he was saying, because every school needs someone who is the hardest line. And once you have that person, it can enable the classroom teacher to be a sort of mediator and it maintains relationships and they can, they can manage a lot of the behavior in their classroom because there's, there's an other who, mm. who holds the line to the most extreme end. And, he, and not having that figure was, he said, was really damaging to his school. And I know there'll be a lot of teachers who look at that and go, well, you know, an enforcer, this, 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 this harsh language but if i look back at my own schooling i there's a guy i won't mention him because i think it's, it's probably not fair but there was a t that teacher and we loved him but we were scared of him and and i can see what my friend who's this teacher was talking about is that we had better relationships with our well, with our mm. class teachers because of the enforcer yeah you're absolutely right and you said that i immediately know who that teacher was in our school and like I say we all thought that we we all didn't like him, but actually you look back, you think actually he was doing a very good job, and getting no praise for it from anyone. Well, from the pupils, you know. But actually, like exactly as you said, his him being the one who picked up every pupil not having their shirt tucked in, even by the smallest amount, which made us think he was the most pedantic. You know what a loser. But he that meant other teachers could sort of not have to do that stuff so much and be more matey with us. But he was doing that hard job for them. And you get old and you look back and think 
that's a tough job to have actually mm. unless you unless you're really nasty and you actively enjoy it. actually you probably think oh god i feel like a i feel mean but you've got to do that role yeah i mean is that tends to be the person writing behavior policy Gronya? i don't know i was i was thinking i don't think we had a teacher like that at my school i think the i was trying really hard to think of who it might be but it was the one who you spent most time with i imagine obviously i was angelic and that never happened um yeah i don't know i think when but then i did also think when you were describing that that is amy forrester she is that person at her school and she has i was gonna say amy if you don't agree with that please don't sue us um it's the personal held views of uh Grawny hallahan <laughs> not, not the views of tess <laughs> okay well that, that's that's one there's loads more great features in the in the magazine um to take a look at but yeah the, the three we've concentrated on today were were, were the ones that we hope to get your feedback on and, and hopefully in future pods we'll be able to reflect on that feedback too before we go i've got a challenge for you both um on friday night because i've got nothing better to do clearly i i tweeted asking whether people were going to still do their nativity and it was a purely selfish tweet because i had a piece on casting a nativity play that i had optimistically commissioned and i suddenly thought well i'm gonna have to spike it which means in journalistic terms you pay the journalist but never run the piece and suddenly i was flooded with responses saying well no we're, we're certainly running our nativity this year we're going to do um going to do it on zoom or we're going to create this amazing um show where we film each individual segment and stitch it all together and there's even one who said he was going to recreate the home alone film um for his christmas extravaganza so it got me thinking about my own time in, in nativity plays and i have to confess that the majority of my time in nativity plays was spent as a shepherd crying on stage i mean it's just a fact of life i was a very nervous child um did either of you make mary or joseph no, no, I was, the only one I remember was being one of the wise men and I had no lines and I was very happy about that. And I had a very good outfit. There was a very nice crown that my mum made me. Um, I looked very regal, but I never said anything, which was probably apt for, you know, why would the wise <laughs> it's the modern man? modern day monarchy, Dan. Yeah, he would just turn up and be, and, you know, welcomed into the manger. <laughs> How about you, Gordia? I was Mary in our church nativity. And my parents have about a million photographs of me as Mary around the house. And um, then I was a narrator. I was always a narrator. Oh, I see, because they, they make the, the best reader the narrator normally, don't they? I mean, it's, it's suddenly you're on show and you need to, you know, roll them out so you can see why, why you became an English teacher. But in recent times, I guess these have become much more extravagant and um bought in and uh, my kids last nativity was in the church hall and and it was like watching a west end musical it was it was all singing and dancing and i just thought some of the innocence of some kids in with tea towels on their head and paper you know what's that paper crepe paper mm. um costumes had, had had gone a little bit and maybe that's because i'm old but um oh our, my daughter's school still does a proper old school nativity with tea towels on their head and um, it's lovely. It makes me cry every year. Ah, oh. well, if you're having a nativity this year and 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 you want to share some thoughts on that, do get in touch because I think it'd be nice in the run up to Christmas to if if you get the permissions and etc to create a little Tez nativity maybe, and we can create a nice a nice bit of film or a, a, a gallery where we can um, we can celebrate Christmas and non denominationally as well. Like if you're having a non a non Christmas, well, maybe we could do a party. film one. Like, yeah. like like the Home Alone guy, we could do something like that. We could do um, you know, 
We could do our own nativity, you say. Well, I'm saying we could, rather than a nativity, we could adapt a famous Christmas film and film the scenes from that. And okay. what's the one with the guy? I've literally had a memory blank where the guy think he, his angel, Clarence the angel, and he gets his wings and he sees what differences he makes to his life. That Tim Allen film. No, it's a really old one, black and white. I had a complete memory blank. Listen I don't to watch any black and white films. Out on it. But it's, it's an absolute classic Christmas film. He, he, oh, he thinks the world would be better off without him. And then he... Not Scrooge, no. Oh, I'm going to have to wait a minute. Um, Dan's Googling. While Dan's Googling, well, I'm going to accept that challenge and say that at some point in a podcast between now and Christmas, we will have our own effort at a, a some sort of Christmas thing. And maybe good. we'll have to recruit some other Tez members Definitely will Pitt. He's, he's, I reckon our head of video is definitely an actor. And I reckon <laughs> Helen Amas will actually hate it. So we'll definitely get her involved too. Um, so that's something to look forward to. Before we go down, have you got the, have you got the name? Because people are going to write it. Honestly, everyone will be shouting at the podcast at their smart speakers. It's A Wonderful Life. Oh, that's what it's wow. called. Never seen it, but I'm, I'm going to go and watch it now. It's a Christmas classic. <laughs> all right, we'll see you all next week. Cheers. Cheers.